0: Today we're going to t- teach on baptism. We were going to do baptism today. Obviously, we're going to move that next week. That's okay. Uh, let me teach on baptism. I think baptism is one of those things that... Um, that, And I feel the Lord's shifting a, little, a couple of things, so we're just going to chase the wind. But baptism is one of those things that everybody... Uh, if you ask them, do you know what baptism is? They say absolutely, and then you ask them what is baptism, and they like can't tell you. And so, uh, so it's one of those things that we've heard so much has become a lullaby. Like we say the lullaby effect. You know what I'm saying? Like baptism is amazing. We love seeing people get baptized, but what are they doing? You know what I mean? And so, so what I want to do today is I want to talk about this because this is huge. And it fits right in line with what the Lord is doing here. So go to Exodus 14 if I didn't tell you that, and we're going to give as we do that. Did anybody want to give in person today? Miss Sally. All right. Stuart, can you pass that back there? Thank you so much. Anybody else give it in person today? Go once, go twice. Oh, just good. All right. Cool. DreamColumbia.com slash give. You can give on all those uh, places. Uh, website, app, all that other fun fun stuff. Baptism. Okay, go to Exodus 14. As you go there, I'm going to read a quote from uh, C. Baxter Kruger, and uh, it's not the one I shared with some of you guys this week. It's a different one, but I just, let me just share this with you. I felt, felt led to share this. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, not a part of God or of one side of God, but of the very being and character of God. What we see in Jesus is that the Father... Listen, listen, listen. What we see in Jesus is that the Father has never once forsaken us or even considered such a thing. That's way too good. I need to read this one more time. What we see in Jesus... Who is Jesus? God and man... Okay? Fully God, fully man. Karl Barth says it like this, very God and very man. Okay? So what we see in Jesus is that the Father has never once forsaken us or even considered such a thing. Jesus is the proof that the Father's love is utterly unwavering and that His eternal dreams for us stand the Son was sent by the Father to find us. He was sent as the living expression of the fire of love in the Father's belly, as the enactment of the eternal Word of God to have us as His beloved children, and He was sent to search us out in the far country to cleanse us of all alienation and bring us home at all cost. Is that not, is that not good? for the listen for the father will have it no other way if we speak if we must speak of the death of jesus christ as satisfaction we must see that what is satisfied in his death is the father's utterly single minded devotion to us and his relentless determination that his extravagant plans for us would be fulfilled even at the cost of his own beloved son's life. And that's the gospel. I mean, how many of us, before we talk about baptism, because what I'm going to talk about today is very, very different, okay? How many of us see the Father as one that has such a love in his belly for us that he was willing to give any cost to have that fulfilled within him. I mean, how many of us have ever seen, we were taught that we have to come to God. We were never taught that he came to us. And if we were taught he came to us, we were only taught he came to us to make a way for us to go to him. No, he came to us and remained. There's nowhere else for you to go. You're in him. And even, see, even as I say that, there's almost this tension within some of you that's like, well, wait a minute. No, there is no wait a minute. There is no hold on. There is reality, which is the way, the truth, and the life, which is only found in who? Jesus. What does Paul say about us in Jesus? It says that we were created in and through and for Jesus. So if you're in Jesus, according to Paul, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father, that means the Father found you and put you on his way. Religion will tell you you have to find the way by way of what you do. Jesus says God found you and put you on the way so that you could wake up and live on the way despite what you've done. Amen. That's amazing. Okay, Exodus 14. Let me read this. Let me read this. You ready? I thought she was talking about baptism. We're in Exodus. Exactly. Here we go. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, they're leaving Egypt. Just to give you a backstory. Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Harioth between Migdal. I'm trying to pronounce it in Hebrew, and I don't have a good Hebrew accent. So that's, you know, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal zephon Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Pause. I really, I, okay. I got to bump this up a little bit before I get too screaming. I really, I really need y'all to see this. Okay. Our heart and heart. They will pursue them, but I will gain glory through myself, uh, for myself, through Pharaoh and all his armies. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Hang on. So the Israelites did this. God's aiming here not just at the Israelites knowing he, he is the Lord, but the Egyptians knowing him as the Lord, which is the world. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with him and the other chariots of Egypt with officers all of them, uh, over all of them, officers over all of them, excuse me. Verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Okay, don't miss this language. He pursued the Israelites who at that point were marching out boldly. Without question, we're leaving Egypt. Okay? The Egyptians, verse 9, All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea opposite of Bel-Zephon. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So verse 8, they were marching out boldly. Verse 10, they were terrified. The difference, they see the Egyptians. Here's what the Lord said about the Egyptians following the Israelites. It was not to overtake the Israelites. It was so that the Egyptians could come out of slavery with the Israelites. Yeah, whew, man. Okay, okay, okay. Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because, this is when you get terrified and you misinterpret what the Lord's doing in your life, you'll start to say stuff like this. Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Remember, the Lord just said he was going to free the Israelites and he was going to make his glory known to the Egyptians. They processed this as the Lord's brought them out to the desert to kill them. You know what I'm saying? Okay. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Do you hear? What have you done to us by setting us free? Well, I'm set you free. You know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> what have you done? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. No one said you were dying in the desert. Right? Y'all with me? Literally no one said, in fact, the only thing that's been said about them is that they were going to the promised land. That's all that's been said about them. They're saying it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. No one's dying. Well, some people are dying, and it ain't going to be you. You ready? Verse 13, Moses answered the people, and this is where we're going to hang out. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. Wait till you see the Hebrew wording here. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Very familiar verse. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea or through the water on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his armies through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know, the word know there is yada, which is intimate knowledge. The Egyptians will intimately know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, which tells us in order for them to fear the Egyptians, they had to take their eyes off the angel of the Lord, who we know, most scholars will agree with this, is Jesus. Jesus in the Old Testament, nine times out of ten, when you see the language, the angel of God or the angel of the Lord, it's speaking of Jesus in Old Testament language. Okay. When they take their eyes off of the angel of God and put their eyes on Egypt's armies, they suddenly transition from faith to being afraid for their lives. The angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's armies withdrew and went behind them. So this is you're missed. There's the angel of the Lord walking in front of them. They turn around, they see the Egyptians coming after them. God doesn't strike them dead. The Lord moves in front of where their perspective had turned, even though it was wrong. Okay. Withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side And light to the other side. (laughs) The cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Neither, what? Darkness and light. He separated the darkness and the light, and neither went near each other. There was a clear distinction. Where do we hear that language? creation. Do you you see this? God said, let there be light. Lights shine forth in the dark. Okay. This is what John says. The light shined forth in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it, could not comprehend it. So you're getting a lot of creation language here. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all Sorry, that was, a big, that was a big cough that totally threw me off. Um, it's okay. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea. They went through the water on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. 23, the Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last night of the watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into confusion, or it, into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, "'Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt.'" No, the Lord is fighting for the Israelites against the slave drivers from Egypt, not Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place at daybreak, at daybreak. When light floods in, the sea goes back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. Not one of them survived. 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground and a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day... The Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. That's not a terrified, that's, that's in like an awe-struck fear. Feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. There's There is so much, so much here, so much here. Let's go back to verse 13. Let's go back to verse 13, and let me read it one more time. Moses answered the people when they're afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Let me break down the Hebrew here. The word for deliverance, ready for this, is the word Yeshua, which means salvation. What is salvation? two weeks ago, is being made whole. Yeshua is the word. And what is the New Testament Greek for salvation? It's sozo. Okay? In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word here is soteria, and it comes from the word sozo. Right there, deliverance. And in verse 14, the word be still is karash, karash. And it means to be silent, to be dumb, to be speechless, to be deaf. But what it really means is be quiet. So what is the Lord saying here? Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the Yeshua. The Lord will bring you today. Who are the Egyptians that he's talking about? You have to make a distinction here. Throughout this text, the Lord mentions two different perspectives on Egyptians. He mentions the Egyptians that will know that he is the Lord, and he mentions the Egyptians that he will essentially kill for the Israelites. Those are not the same Egyptians. He's, so the Egyptians that will know the Lord are the Egyptians, the Gentiles. Okay? Okay? The Egyptians that he is going to fight on Israelite's behalf, uh, Israelite Israel Israel's behalf against is Pharaoh and his army that is going after Israel to put them back in slavery. Y'all with me? So there's Egyptians that will know the Lord, and then there's Egyptians that are trying to bring Israel back into their slavery that the Lord will not allow. Okay. So that's one thing to point out. But when the Lord says, verse 14, I will fight for you, you only need to be still, he's literally saying, I will fight for you, you only need to be quiet. You only need to be quiet. What is he saying? When he says "When he says to stand, okay, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the Yeshua the Lord will bring you today. When he says that, The word stand means to take your rightful place, okay? And the word see there is the same word that he uses over and over when he says, you will see the deliverance of the Lord. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. It's the same word. It's all perspective. The word see here is all about perspective. It's not just what you see, it's what you see. This is what we talk about all the time. So he says to stand, which is to take your rightful place and see the salvation the Lord will accomplish on your behalf today. The Egyptians that you see today, remember why they're afraid, because they see the Egyptians. The ones that you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will conquer them for you. You only need to be quiet. Why? Because everything that they had just released from their mouth was fear, wishing they were back in slavery because they think the Lord brought them into the wilderness to kill them. The Lord says, the only way you're going to see what I'm trying to do through you is if you shut the mouth of your doubt up. Where do we hear this again? In, in the story of Zechariah going into the temple, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a son. He will be the one that prepares the way for the Lord. Zechariah says, how can this be? Right? And the angel of the Lord, he says, give me a sign. Give me a sign and I'll believe it. The angel says, here's your sign. You're not going to talk until you see your son. Why? I'm not going to let one ounce of doubt affect what the Lord's doing in your life. This is exactly what he's saying here. He's saying the only way you're going to see this is if you shut your doubt up. Who were the Egyptians to the Israelites? They were the ones, the Egyptians that are chasing after them. They were the ones who put them in slavery. So what are they being saved from slash for? They're being saved from slavery for freedom or wholeness. How will the Lord accomplish this? By Israel passing through the waters, and the Lord obliterating their slave masters in the very waters that they found freedom on the other side of. I mean, that's a lot. How is the Lord going to set them free? He's. Gonna, I'm going to draw this out. He's going to send them through the waters the Israelites are going to find freedom through the water. The slave drivers are going to be stopped in the water. Same water. So here's the sea. Okay? Y'all just picture this. And here's the dry land, and here's all the Israelites walking through. Sad because they're doubting. Okay. So, we're free, but this is awful. Okay. So, they're walking, this is what we do though. This is, what, this is how we do things. They're walking through on dry land and they're walking through what? What are, they, what are they passing through? Water. Okay? And they're going through, the way to freedom is through water. Why? Because in the water, two things are happening. Number one, They're being set free. Number two, the Lord is putting an end to that which kept them from freedom. So the Israelites are being set free. Israel. Boom. Let me, no, I'm not going to write. Let me write this. Slave masters. Uh, are going to die. Okay. In the water, two things are happening. See, and we're starting to make the connection with baptism. Freedom and a death to their slavery. This is going to be so good. This is going to be so good. I want you to start seeing some connections, okay? Because here's what we said. We said that baptism was us proclaiming to the world, and I'm not saying it's not, but we said baptism was us proclaiming to the world that we've accepted Jesus as our Lord. That's great. To tell the world, in fact, your life should tell the world that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord. Okay? shouldn't take baptism to do that. So if baptism is not just you proclaiming to the world that Jesus is Lord, there, there's a reason why John is baptizing in the Jordan, preparing the way for Jesus. There's a reason why he's b- John didn't sit around one day and say, you know what? I'm going to dunk some people under the water. Think about this. John, I mean, he's not sitting around saying, you know what we need to do? We ought to go need to take a dunk. And when we come out of that water, we're going to have freedom. No, John is announcing another exodus has come. And the Israelites in the first exodus had to pass through the water of freedom where their slavery was put to death. This exodus was going to require freedom. A passing through the water where that which kept you enslaved is put to death. And what does John preach? The message that he preaches as he's baptizing people is what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repentance? Metanoia, to change how you think. Change how you think, or let's say all like this. Baptize how you think for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, before this happens, the Lord addresses their doubt. Before they go through the water, the Lord addresses their doubt. Before they enter the waters of freedom, they would have to change their thinking. And he tells them to stand, which is to take your rightful place. Remember what we said sin, I'm going to do a little bit of review. What did we say sin was? Hamartia. okay? If you look it up in a lexicon, it says missing the mark. Great. But the word hamarteia, sin, in the New Testament comes from ha, which means without, and meros, which is where we get the word martia, and meros means portion or form, without form, or I say formlessness, is what sin is. So how does formlessness and missing the mark connect? Okay? Matt said this last Tuesday. We've said this a thousand different times. It's in archery. The rabbis used to explain this in terms of archery. So if there's a target right there, and I've got a bow and arrow right here, and I'm shooting, I'm going I'm to hit the mark because I'm standing in the right place. Here's what sin is. Sin is not my aim is really, really bad, and so I keep missing my target. That's not what sin is. Sin is the target is right there, and I'm standing right here. And no matter how good of a shot I am, because I'm not standing in the right place, 100% of the time, I'm going to miss my mark. So what Jesus came to do was not train us how to be good at archery. Jesus came to take us and say, you're standing here, but the aim is right there. And to move us back to our rightful place. That was what Jesus came to do. That's how he dealt with sin. It was not to tell us to shoot better. It was to tell us to get in our right spot, and the arrow will do its own work. Okay? So he says to stand, which is to take your rightful place in Exodus 13 and 14, Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. To stand three times in these two verses, three times he tells them to see. Three times. Very significant. And then he tells them to be quiet, stand in your rightful place, have your eyes on the right thing, or let's say it like this, have the right perspective and be quiet. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you, are you starting to see these connections? Okay. Why would he tell them to be quiet? Because doubt and a desire, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, let me back up. What had they just voiced in verses 11 and 12? They voiced a doubt and and they voiced a desire by way of fear to go back to slavery. So they voiced their fear and their doubt and they voiced a desire to go back to slavery. And the Lord is saying... For you to be truly free, you're going to have to be quiet and trust that what I am doing for you right now in these waters is exactly what I need to do to get you to freedom. Okay. Let me take a little, let me take a little U-turn. Nope, no, 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 nope, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Go to John uh, chapter three. John chapter three. John chapter three. And then I'm gonna take a U-turn. What time is it, Lord? We got so much time. Praise God! You don't understand the excitement I get when I look at the clock and I see eleven eighteen. Um, <laughs> uh, the world is your oyster. Um, so let's uh, let's see. Let me get this. Let me get this U-turn ready. So we'll we'll take it real quick. Y'all won't even know we did it. Um, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Amazing. Hope y'all brought, brought your Passion Translation day. If not, it's okay. Okay. John 3, let me just read this extremely quick, but I want you to hear this. Verse 1, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Very familiar story, forget everything you thought you knew about this story, you ready? There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was high up, I mean this dude was the religious among religious, like he is the religious leader, okay? Okay. Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Born again. Okay? Amen, brother. Hold up. Unless they're born again. Verse 4. How, let me teach this, and I got to give a major thanks to, uh, to the people at Bama. Marty Solomon, and all of them. Uh, this is amazing. So, uh, this is not original. This is totally stolen, but it's great. Verse 4 How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, I have taught this, and I'm wrong, but I, we have seen this first as Nicodemus being dumb. How can can somebody be born again? What are you talking about? But we're talking about Nicodemus, who is the brains of the entire religious operation. This dude was smart. He knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. So how do we reconcile a Nicodemus who is brilliant with verse 4, where Nicodemus seems like he's saying, this makes no sense? Okay. Okay. When Israel comes through the waters, okay, they are, as a country, born through the waters. They leave Egypt, and in the waters of the sea, they are reborn into who they were always designed to be, which is Abraham's seed. And for them to be reborn, God had to do away with that which kept them from being reborn, which was the slave drivers, the Egyptians, right? Nicodemus and Jesus are having a conversation about this new exodus. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see. What are the three things, three times that God tells the Israelites in those two verses? See, right? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And as soon as he says that, Nicodemus realizes he, this dude is talking about Exodus. So he says, how can someone be born again or born when they are old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born He's saying, we've done that. How can something that has progressed all these thousands of years from when we were born go back to Egypt and be born again? See, so he's not dumb. He knows exactly what Jesus is saying, and he's responding in the way that Jesus is responding to him. If you're going to use that type of language, i got some language I can use too. Jesus says, you can't see it unless you're born again. Well, that's really interesting, Jesus. We were born. How can we, after all these years and everything we've been through, go back to Egypt and be born again? So you see what he's saying? Right? That just messed with half of y'all's childhood. I'm sorry. (laughs) Verse 5. Okay? So Jesus answers and says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter. Now he's transitioned. He said, see, now he says, enter. He's not doing this on purpose. This is not a bad translation. Jesus is doing this exactly like he's doing. He's saying no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Very interesting. Very interesting. No one can enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here would be what the New Testament would define for all as the promised land that we were designed for. So, very truly I tell you, no one can enter this promised land unless they are born, once again, of water and of spirit. Okay? Nicodemus, I tell you, nobody can see this unless they go back to Egypt and they're born again. Nicodemus, how can this happen? We've gone through all this. We've gone through the exiles. We've gone through the prophets. We've gone through David the king. We've gone through all of this. You're telling us we're going back to Egypt? How can that happen? And Jesus says, Nicodemus, I'm telling you the truth. You can't enter the promised land that I'm bringing unless you're born once again through the water and through the Spirit. I'm going to stop right there. The rest is amazing, but I don't have time today. Number one, okay, remember, what is Jesus saying? John baptized everyone in the Jordan to prepare the way for Jesus, and even Jesus himself was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay? Jesus was baptized. If baptism has to do with your sin, I'm, re- I'm going to really ruffle some feathers. Why did Jesus get baptized? Because Jesus never sinned. Yeah. Yes. Y'all hang on. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Uh, I love people that know their Bible. What was John preaching? With baptism, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, change how you think, kingdom of heaven, our promised land. Okay, And remember the language in Exodus 14. Take your place, be quiet, shut off the doubt, change your thinking, and watch the Lord's salvation, which was Yeshua, which is the name of his son, Jesus, Yeshua, which for them was ultimately the promised land. When God said, stand still and watch the Lord's deliverance, the deliverance that he was talking about, the salvation that he was talking about, ultimately was the promised land. Stand still and watch the Lord take you from these waters to where I am taking you, which is the promised land where you and I dwell forever. He's talking about the promised land. So in this language, in John 3, Jesus is picking up the Exodus story and he's looking at Nicodemus, who is what? the religious leader. And he says, Nicodemus, the only way for us to enter this promised land is going to come by way of another water. This water is not going to take us from Egypt to Canaan. This water is going to take us from religion to covenant. Okay, okay, okay. So he says, this is going to happen two ways it's going to be baptism or he says born of those born of water or in water that's pointing to the exodus when the israelites passed through the waters that killed their slavery which is the egyptian army and pharaoh i don't you're not you're totally not ready for this and that's okay i need your attention right here this is huge if if born of water is talking about the exodus here's the question what is, and don't answer your first thought because it's wrong, okay? If born of water is talking about the Exodus, what does it mean when he says, and born of the Spirit? Most of you just thought Acts 2, which is a manifestation of what he's talking about, but that's not what he's talking about. Okay? Is that what you thought, Acts 2? Okay, okay. I thought that's why you were laughing. So so here's the word. The word, you ready for this? The word for spirit here, okay, is the word which could be translated three ways. It's the word spirit, it's the word wind, and it is the word breath. Breath. Let me read this to you real quick. Don't turn there, because I didn't tell you where it was. See if this sounds familiar. Then the Lord God formed man, or a man, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the breath. Okay. The breath is the breath of life. The word in Greek, the Septuagint breath, is pione, pione, and it means a blowing wind or breath. It is the same exact word that is used in Acts 2-2 when there is a sound of a Rushing wind. Same word. So when there's a sound of a rushing wind, the same Greek word is the word that the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uses when it says that God breathed into the man. Same word. Okay? And the word life, the breath of life, is Zoe, which is God life. So he breathed the breath of his own life, and the man became a living being. When did the man become a living being? Not when he was formed from the dust, when he received the breath of God's own life. Let us make man in our image and likeness. He takes the dust of the ground. I'm, like, I'm about to run out of this room. He takes the dust of the ground and he raises it up. It's still not alive. You and I were not designed for anything other than the breath of God flowing through our veins. You are not living unless you are living in the breath. That clump was nothing until, and right then the man became a living being. So born of spirit or breath, is Jesus using the language of when mankind was created. We were formed, but we didn't become a living being in God life until the breath of God or the Holy Spirit or breath was breathed into us. So what is Jesus saying? No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Jesus is saying, unless you are freed from your slavery, born of water, and brought back to who you originally were, born of the spirit of breath, you cannot enter the kingdom of God or you cannot enter this promised land. That was a lot of work to get there. That was a lot of work. Right? But I need you to see this. Jesus is not saying, unless you are baptized and you speak in other tongues. I love speaking in other tongues. But that's, Jesus is talking about something way deeper than you speak in Chinese. Okay? Way deeper. He's saying, unless you go... Let me just erase this because this little dude just frowning and distracting me. Unless you, unless you go through the waters, okay? John introduced baptism to point to Exodus. He's saying there is a new exodus that is here, and it is required of us to go through the waters again. What waters? Not us literally going from Egypt to literally going to Canaan, but us literally going from Egypt to us literally going to Canaan. You see what I'm saying? He's saying it has nothing to do with where you are physically located. It has everything to do with where you are perspective located. So, you're going to go through the waters of freedom from slavery. And then we're about to take a U turn that's going to be fun. Freedom from slavery is the water. And I'm going to do this real cool like, and breath, put a crown. Jesus. Okay. Happy. And breath is going to be original design. You can't be who you originally were until you let go of the slavery that kept you from being who you originally were. Jesus says, unless you are freed from your slavery and given your original life design back, you'll never see the kingdom and you'll never enter it. Now, we've taken this verse and we've used this about heaven. Unless you... Are baptized in the baptismal, and unless you're full of the Holy Spirit, because speaking no language and prophesy, you'll never go to heaven. That could not be further from what Jesus is talking about. Lord, dear Lord, help us. That's stuff that's being preached in pulpits today. That, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to be mean, but like, <laughs> this is where we are. This is why people are running around saying, man, this is actually a good thing Russia's invading Ukraine because the rapture's happening tomorrow. no, 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 right? You know what I'm saying? Like, see, see, even, see, even when I say that, some of y'all are just like, man, I just don't know about that, Lord. So it's like, let's it's time to move on, okay? So time to get up, time to move on from John Darby's rapture. So we, 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 when we go through baptism, we're not announcing to the world that we've been saved. You are, but that's not the point of baptism. The point of baptism is to be a sign for you to point to that says you left your slavery in the water. I'm going to show you what the slavery he's talking about is in just a second, but you left your slavery in the water. Here's the danger, that you go through the waters of being free from slavery and you never receive your original breath. How many people have been baptized, but they're still stuck in the same old way of living because they were never given their original breath back, which actually made them a living being? If you, go, if you stop at baptism, all you, all you are is the clump of dust that God raised up. You're free from slavery. But who cares if you're free from slavery unless you being free from slavery gives you permission to live again? Okay. Thank you all so much. Um, I hear your ums, and that just fires me up, so thank you all. Um, I mean, I'm serious. That, uh, that's so cool. So, uh, <laughs> went, no, 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 no. I, I had a whole note here and I literally wrote no with a smiley face on it to say, don't say that today. Okay. What is, so here's the question. Here's the question I want to ask and then I'm done and we'll talk about what is baptism. Okay. The question is, what is the slavery that we're being freed from? This is what Galatians 4 says. In a similar way, God promised... This is the Passion Translation, so you might as well not even turn there. In a similar way, God has promised... I'm just playing. Our ancestors something better. But as long as an heir is a minor, he's not really much different than a servant, although he is master overall. For until the time appointed by the father, when he comes of age, the child is under domestic supervision of the guardians of the estate let me jump ahead let me jump ahead and i want to get to on a really i'm gonna get to verse 21 verse 21 in galatians 4 tell me because paul's about to tell us the, the slavery tell me do you want to go back to living strictly by the law haven't you ever listened to what the law really says Have you forgotten that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave girl and the other by the free woman? Ishmael, the son of the slave girl, was a child of the natural realm, but Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born supernaturally by the breath, a child of the promise of God. These two women and their sons express an allegory and become symbols of two covenants. The first covenant was born at Mount Sinai, birthing children into Slavery. slavery. Children born to Hagar, for Hagar represents the law given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. The Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today who are currently in bondage. Verse 26. In contrast, there is a heavenly realm in front of us. I edited that. That's the right translation. Which is our true mother. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. For it is written... Burst forth with gladness, O barren woman with no children. Break forth with shouts of joy and jubilee, for you're about to give birth. The one who was once considered desolate and barren now has more children than the one who has a husband. Dear friends, just like Isaac, we now are the true children who inherit The kingdom promises. And just as the son of the natural world at the time harassed the son born of the power of the Holy Spirit, so it is today. And what does Scripture tell us to do? Expel the slave mother with her son. The son of the slave woman will not be a true heir. The true heir of the promises is the son of the free woman. Check this out. It's now so obvious. He obviously wasn't writing to Western America. It's now so obvious. We are not the the children of the slave woman. We are the natural, supernatural sons of the free woman, sons of grace. Last verse. Let me be clear. The anointed one has set us free, not partially, but completely and wonderfully free. We must always cherish this truth and stubbornly refuse to go back into the bondage of our past. Do you hear Exodus in this? Do you hear this? So when Paul says, Paul, what slavery are we being set from in the waters? Religion. Well, what about sin? Here's what Paul says. In Romans 5, he says that the law, okay, religion, was given for what? So that the trespass might be made known. So for you to leave sin in the water is absolutely true. You leave sin in the water by leaving religion in the water that makes sin known. And that's the shift that the Lord is calling us to make. Today is absolutely about baptism, but today is absolutely about baptism. The shift he's calling us to make is from a a mindset that sin is up against Christianity. No, 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 no. Religion is up against reality, which is covenant. And that's the world that's going on in the world. That's what's happening. If you get every person on planet Earth to actually believe that they have the value, that they actually really have, what begins to happen? No more sin. Why? Not because they made the decision to stop living in sin, but because they laid down a life of always measuring up. You cannot measure up by your works. God rigged the system so that you could not measure up by your works, so that the only way for you and I to come home is by way of him coming to get us. He rigged the system. You can't make it by works. You can't be good enough for this. He did it on purpose like that so that the only way you and I could ever say we got home was by way of the Father coming to find us where we were in our foreign country, grabbing us and saying, you are not a slave, you are a son or daughter, and you're coming home. And you might have been kicking and screaming and cussing and complaining the whole way, but he still brought you home and you could live your entire life in the father's house thinking you're still a slave or you could lay down the slavery mentality and have fun being in the father's house but this is not an issue of you and I still being in a foreign country needing to come home you're home the issue is is now that you're home are you going to live like you're home that's the issue that's the issue We don't look at the cross and say that Jesus did a good enough job, but we've got to come in and clean up the part he didn't do. No, Jesus did exactly what he came to accomplish. That is not the question. Religion has tried to question that. Religion has tried to say that salvation has to do with us doing something Jesus did not do on the cross. That we've got to clean up it. We've got to back clean up. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus accomplished exactly what he came to accomplish. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be sozoed. So did Jesus fail? Absolutely not. He succeeded. So that's not the question. The question is, why are so many people still living like slaves when they aren't slaves anymore? Why are people in the world living like they're people enslaved to what the flesh wants? I hate using that language because we don't understand what Paul is saying when he says flesh and spirit. But we think he's talking about the skin flesh that we're trying to... No, that's Plato. Plato was talking about a skin flesh that you got a ghost in you that's escaping to heaven. That's, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. Paul is talking about you being led by the outside in rather than the inside out okay but we got a world that's living outside in we're letting the world we're let there's a lot of people that's letting the world tell um tell them who they are tell them what they should be doing tell them what they should be doing with their life let I me mean, tell them what they should be doing with their church tell them what they should be doing with their ministry i mean we've got and people are following that voice like crazy which produces formlessness, which is sin. Formlessness is not knowing who you are. So there's a lot of people living in a, in a reality that they don't know who they are, which is sin. Jesus came so that he could bring our tails home so that when we get home, he could sit down and not beat us until we act right. He could sit us down and say, you've lived your whole life thinking I was mad at you and I never was. You've lived your whole life thinking that you've got to earn your way back to me, and I was right there on the porch waiting for you the whole time. You never had to earn your way back. You never had to find your way home. I found you. That's what the incarnation is. It wasn't God God saying, here's a new law. This is the way you can get back to me. It was God saying, I'm going to become you to find you where you are and bring you back to where I am. This is what St. Athanasius says. St. Athanasius is John the Beloved. So the writer of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Athanasius was John the Beloved's spiritual grandson, okay? So around 130-something A.D., St. Athanasius wrote this in, I believe, one of the most significant writings ever in history, and he said this, and people think it's heresy today, which shows you how far we've gone, okay? Athanasius says this, God became man so that man could become God, Not me. I didn't say that. Athanasius said that. If you want to take it up with anybody, take it up with John, because that was a spiritual grandson. What he's not saying is is that you're becoming God. But what he is absolutely saying is you're becoming like God by way of Jesus becoming like you. Okay, this is real good. This is real good. Those under the law are enslaved. Not those exclusively, it includes this, but not those exclusively under sin, those under the law of sin and death. Remember who Jesus is talking to in John 3. He's not talking to a prostitute. He's talking to the religious leader. This doesn't mean that people can just go and do whatever they want, live however they want. It means we define what living in sin is differently. Sin is formlessness. You aren't living in sin because of what you've done that fails to measure up. You're living in sin because you believe in a covenant that has to be measured up too. One more time. One more time. You're not living in sin because you've you've failed to do what measures up. Let me back up. Let me say this one more time. You aren't living in sin because of what you've done that fails to measure up. You're living in sin because you believe in a covenant that has to be measured up too. This is not a covenant of the law. It's a covenant of grace and love. And if the Israelites had seen Exodus 19 and Mount Sinai correctly, they would have received a covenant of love and grace, not a covenant of the law. Well, brother, how do you prove that? Because Abraham was the first one to receive the covenant and it did not come with the law. Why did it not come with a law? Because Abraham trusted, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Did not get a law. Isaac did not get a law. Jacob wrestled with the Lord until he was renamed Israel. Did not get a law. The Israelites go out into the wilderness, though, and they say, Moses, go up to the mountain. I want you to be just like Pharaoh. That's what Pharaoh would have done. He would have gone into the place with the gods, heard from the gods, come back to the Egyptians, and told them what the gods said. That's all they ever knew. We don't want the covenant thing because we fear God. We want you to go and talk to God that we're afraid of and come back and tell. We want a religion, and we do the same thing today. We want a religion called Christianity to cover the globe. No, 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 we don't. Please, no. We don't need the religion of Christianity to cover the globe. We need the globe to realize its identity. That's what we need. This is not a competing religion with Muslims and Islam and Buddha. This is not. A, we're not competing with anybody. I'm not competing. I want people that are in Buddhism to realize that that's not who they are and come into the reality, not of Christianity, but of son and daughtership. Jesus did not come to say, here's Christianity, praise God, the world's going to be saved. Jesus never called them Christians. And the early church never called them Christians. The people of Antioch that weren't even in the church called them Christians. Jesus called them sons and daughters. If that, and, and let me just say this, if that rubs you weird, you might need to be baptized next week. I mean, I, like, you know what I'm saying? Because you're, you're and well, brother, I've been baptized. I mean, if, if, if something was not left in the water, let me say it like this if you were baptized into religion, you weren't biblically, and this is so heretical. If you, weren't, if you were baptized into a religion, then you did not do the thing that John the Baptist or Jesus set up for us to do. Jesus and John and the early church did baptism as an announcement of a new exodus. They were announcing freedom from the law of sin and works and into a covenant where you can be who you are and that's what they were announcing this this is massive and you said well man, well, is that what what shall we do now should uh, should we just sin to our hearts content so that grace may abound certainly not you've died to sin remember what we talked about last week Paul said, how could you live in sin when you left it in the waters of being free from the thing that kept you enslaved, which was religion, which brought about a reality of sin? You wouldn't know your sin had you not lived in religion. Y'all with me? You wouldn't know what your sin was unless you had been in religion. Lord, Lord, Lord. Okay, I'm getting myself in so much trouble and it's so much fun. Um, In the Garden of Eden... There's a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil, okay? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really the knowledge of just evil because they already know what's good, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Good, 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 very good. They know what's good. God had made an announcement, this is what's good, good, that's good, that's good, that's good, and you are very good, right? So they know what's good. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil only introduces one foreign thought, evil, So, they could either either taste the tree of life and live forever with with an exclusive knowledge of goodness, or they could taste of the tree that introduces something that God left out. And in thinking that God withheld something from them that they needed, they take a bite of the tree that had something in it that God left out of them, which was evil. What is evil? It's a measure of goodness right? If you remove goodness from the picture, you don't know what evil is. However, if you remove evil from the picture, you still know what goodness is. It's very philosophical, you know what I'm saying? So just evil only exists as a measure of goodness. What's happening in Ukraine is evil. Why? Because we know what goodness is, and what we see is a very, very, very crappy level of goodness, That's called evil, right? Right. So if next week they announce, which I'm really believing they will, I'm praying over this. If they announce a peace deal, suddenly what we called evil is going to start to become good again. Why? We know what good is. It's just a measure of goodness. Evil is just a measure of goodness. So when they take a bite of this tree, it introduces one thing starting to measure up. Is what we did good or is what we did evil? Is what we did good? How good is what we do? Is it really good or is it not really good? And their eyes are, well, my Lord, we're naked. They've always been naked. Nothing new. They've always been naked, except now they're looking around. And I believe, I can't prove this, but there's a lot of scholarship um, working on this. I believe when it says they realize their nakedness, here's what it's talking about. Before the knowledge of evil comes in, they're looking at each other flawlessly, only good the knowledge of evil comes in and suddenly Adam and Eve begin to look at at each other and start measuring each other up. And what do they do? They cover their nakedness. Why? So that they can't look at me and judge my nakedness and I can't look at them and judge their nakedness. They become ashamed of the thing they've lived in their whole lives. Because something has now intruded who they are that says, now you've got to measure up. Nothing changed. Nothing changed except now there is a foreign intruder of evil, and it's called measuring up. What is religion? Always having to measure up. Always measuring up by what you do. Always measuring up by who you are. When I was a kid on Mother's Day, y'all heard me tell these stories before, we would give flowers to the moms, right? And so we would give the flowers to the oldest mom, and we would give flowers to the youngest mom. And the reason we gave flowers to the youngest mom is so that the whole church could see the teenage girl that had done stuff that they shouldn't be doing, so that as she walked up to get her flowers on Mother's Day in front of the whole church, everybody in the church could look at her and say, my Lord, that's so-and-so's daughter. Can you believe they got pregnant and they're 16 years old? That's religion. That's all we did. We had people come in our churches with tattoos, and we made them sit in the back because people with tattoos aren't very... And listen, if that's the case, I'm out of the church. Praise God. You know what I'm saying? But, but that, that's and it's always having to measure up. The problem is, is when Jesus found the woman caught in the act of adultery, He did not tell her to measure up. He told her, "You are not condemned." And that gave her permission to go and live formlessness no more. So what is baptism? Baptism, Matt, you can come up here. Baptism is a symbolic act where you, just like the Israelites and I, go through the waters as a slave, to use the Israelite mentality and come out of the waters as a free son or daughter or bride. And what dies in the water is that which kept you enslaved, which is, according to Paul, a mindset of performance, which is religion, which is sin. When should we get baptized? Question number two. When should we get baptized? When you're ready to be free from slavery and see God and yourself for who he and you really are. When should you be baptized? When you repeat the prayer? That's great. As long as when you hit that water, you know that what's staying under the water is not all your past bad performance. What's staying under the water is a mentality that you have to perform at all. Y'all with me? So absolutely, because that's what people hear this message and be like, oh, you're saying the baptism. has n-. No, I'm saying baptism has to do with sin. Absolutely. I'm just saying sin is only known because of religion. So Romans 5 says the law was brought in so that sin may increase. In other words, you would not know what Christ died for had it not been for religion that put you in slavery so that when he came to set you free, you knew he was setting you free because you knew what slavery was like, because it was called the law of religion. you with me. So it has nothing to do with us saying religion versus sin. No, sin and religion go hand in hand, hand in hand. This has everything to do with us talking about whether or not you live having to measure up or whether or not you live having measured up. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about you transitioning from living like you always have to measure up to now living because you have forever measured up by way of Jesus. And so let me, let me put a note. Somebody asked me this when, they, when I uh, said I was going to talk about baptism. Ask me about infant baptism. Because um, some of you, has anybody been baptized as an infant? I mean, there's no like, yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, okay. Um, I, this is, how do I say this out? I don't have as big of a problem with infant baptism as a lot of people do. I want my daughter from the time she is a baby to be baptized in a freedom from measuring up. I don't care when you get baptized. As long as that is an announcement that you are living in the finished work of Christ, not in finishing the work of Christ. I don't care when you're baptized as long and and listen, I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, you don't have to agree with me. That's okay. It's no big deal. This isn't going to change whether or not you go to heaven or hell. Like, you know what I'm saying? But I don't care when you get baptized as long as you live in in the finished work of Jesus, not in finishing the work of Jesus in your life. There is nothing for you to finish. It's been finished. That's why he said, It's finished. You don't have to finish anything, it's done. You have to live as if it has been finished. Do y'all see what I'm saying? I'm trying to get us to make this, it's, it's, a, it's a one degree shift. It's a one degree shift from living like you have to measure up to living like it has been measured up. But how many of you know, one degree seems very insignificant until you travel 300 miles down the road. And when you get 300 miles down the road, suddenly what seemed insignificant, almost like you couldn't even tell the difference, now you're on completely different states. Right? So this subtle shift that the Lord is doing in us over the next 10, 15, 20, 500 years is going to align us in a place that if we had kept going down this zero negative one degree path that didn't seem like anything today it was gonna take us somewhere completely different in 500 years, right? Question number three and then this, uh, I'm done. What does wholeness, salvation, excuse me, does wholeness or salvation depend on baptism? In other words, if somebody dies and they have a relationship with Jesus but they've never been baptized, do they go to heaven? And if you, like, we're talking about what happens when we live, okay? <clears throat> yes, you will go to heaven. But, like, let's focus on what happens while we're living. None of us are dead right now. Okay? So does salvation or wholeness depend on baptism? Listen, it absolutely depends on what baptism represents. Y'all, y'all picking it up? I know it's 12. 12. Every time I see the clock get later, I feel worse about myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, I don't have as much time. Uh, Not worse about myself, worse about like the fact that I don't have as much time. But y'all just hang with me. It absolutely, your wholeness absolutely depends on what baptism represents. Okay, Jesus saved the world. That's not an issue. Baptism doesn't affect you being saved. Jesus did that. Okay, again, that's thinking in terms of what have I got to do? Jesus did that. Baptism absolutely affects how much of the life to the full slash God life that Jesus gave you, you actually live in. Right? This, you can live like a slave the rest of your life and try to approach God by way of religion. And one day when you're standing face to face with God, all you're gonna feel is, I really wish I hadn't lived like that. You'll be with the Lord. The only thing that's going to happen is you're going to stare into the eyes of Jesus and say, My Lord, what kind of life did I miss out on? But if you're going to live the God life, life to the full, there's something that has to be left in the waters of the Red Sea. And it's that which kept you enslaved your entire life. So I'm going to, I want to pray. I want to pray and uh, I want y'all to bow your heads with me. Go ahead and bow your heads, everybody in the room. I'm going to do a very different prayer. I'm to ask you this. And I think, I, I think it's the Lord that maybe pushed us back to baptism next week. Because I think, I think some of you might need to be, might need to be baptized. I want to read this as your eyes are closed. I want to read this one more time over you. And then I'm going to pray, but I want you to just take this in. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, not part of God or one side of God, but the very being and character of God. What we see in Jesus is that the Father has never once forsaken us or even considered us. Such a thing. What we see in Jesus is that the Father has never once forsaken us or even considered such a thing. Is there anybody in the room that you would say, and this is going to take some boldness? But is there anybody in the room that you would say you need to be baptized? You need to be baptized. We've already got somebody being baptized next week. It's already gonna be set up. You can do it too. But is there anybody in the room that you would say, I, I think I need to I need to go through the waters of the Red Sea? Anybody in the room? That takes some bold that takes some boldness. Awesome. If you're watching this and that's you, send us a message or an email. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna pray this week the Lord really begins to, for those of us that, us that have been baptized, that the Lord begins to really make this reality real to us. So Lord, I pray that this week there would be something that begins to shift on the inside of us that that any part of us that believes we are still accomplishing salvation like it is something that is varied and continual, I pray that there would be just that one degree shift from living to achieve salvation and instead living within the salvation that we have received freely by grace. And those around us that we have prayed to come home over and over and over and over, us being set free from our bondage is going to give them permission to be set free from their bondage. This, this is going to shift everything. And we as a church symbolically today are walking through the waters of the Red Sea. And as we turn around and look behind us, you are washing away that which kept us enslaved, which in the South is religion. And you're washing it away, and you're finishing it. And as that is finished, we can finally live. It's in your name we pray, amen.